0: I so we'll quote to begin with, the soldier is a serving man. He does not follow his own pleasure. He is under law and rule. Each hour of the day has its prescribed duty. and he must be obedient to the word of another, not to his own will and whim. Such is the Christian. We serve the Lord Jesus Christ, though no longer slaves of man, so as to dread his frown. We are servants of Christ who has loosed our bonds. The soldier is full, often a suffering man. There are wounds, there are toils, there are frequent stays in the hospitals, there may be ghastly cuts which let out the soul with the blood. Such the Christian soldier must be ready to suffer enduring hardship, not looking for pleasure of a worldly kind in this life, but counting it his pleasure, to renounce his pleasure for Christ's sake. Once again, the true soldier is an ambitious being. He pants for honour and seeks for glory. On the fields of strife, he gathers his laurels, and amidst a thousand dangers, he reaps renown. Those are the words of Charles Spurgeon, preached in 1870, a local preacher to hear, probably one of my favourite, as I look back in history. I think they help us understand the weight, but also the context, of our passage today, because the Christian life is is to be lived to serve our Lord our Saviour, and our King. To make His known, to seek His glory, and not our own. Of course, there's privilege in that. But like the soldier, there's also pain. The Christian life is hard, isn't it, sometimes? There's opposition, and there's even persecution. And that is why Peter writes, I think, with a, an incredible realism in this kind of middle section Of 1 Peter. Because there will be hard times. There may even be suffering. Think back what we've learned so far. um, In 1 Peter. If we can. Peter's uh, reminded the scattered. The persecuted Christians. That they're loved by God. In this immeasurable way. You think of just verse 1 and 2. Of chapter 1. Through his electing love. And his sanctifying spirit. We've been called to serve with joy. And obedience to our saviour. The Lord Jesus Christ. Who saved us through his blood. But Christians live in a world that doesn't just lack understanding of of that living hope that we have in us, given through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but the world is also hostile toward those who have that living hope, those of us who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christians cannot and, and will never fit into a world that has a mindset completely different to ours. Christians are therefore described, as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, they're described as aliens, aren't they? As strangers in this letter. Alien because of the way we think and the corresponding life that we live will always be different in this world. We're residents here, of course we are, but Tim put it brilliantly, didn't it, two weeks ago. He said, we're not home home. Uh, you know, we, we serve a different king who reigns over a different eternal kingdom. Therefore, we are resident here but it's not really home, home, is it? So, though, although our alien status requires us to abstain from some of the ways of the people who live around us, Christians are not to be called are not called to be alienated aliens, but rather unalienated aliens. That is, integrated into the culture around us, living such good lives as Chapter Two says, contributing to society. Why? Chapter 2, verse 12, glance down at it. It says simply that, we, that they, that is the non-Christians, may see our good deeds and glorify God on the day that he returns, on the day he visits us. You see, we live as Christians that, that we might draw people to God so that they might have that privilege of glorifying God on the day that he visits us. That is, to trust him. Not only with their lives, but also with their deaths too. That is the reason that Peter turns to a number of different kind of relationships that need to be lived and will be lived by you and I in this world in order to commend Christ in those relationships to the world around us. It's pretty well summarised, if you can't down to, to chapter 2, Verse 17. That kind of sits as a summary section of how we are to relate to the world around. It says, show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, you guys. Fear God, honour the king. And that sits in the middle of a whole section, if you like, of Peter practically working out what it means for Christians to live in relationship in the world around them. And we see in chapter two verse thirteen, Car down, it's for the Lord's sake. Any relationship that we live, any interaction with anyone, is for the Lord. But then it goes on. First set of relationships is we're called to submit to authorities in the world. We see in chapter two verse thirteen. Secondly, we see the second section to masters or well, let's say bosses, you know, at work and so on. Chapter two verse eighteen. Why? Well, two fifteen is really important to silence the ignorant, uh, the ignorant talk of foolish men. That is to, to commend Christian living so there's no opportunity for your non-Christian friends to criticise or to mock the Christian life. But now you see also, when we turn to our, chapter, uh, our passage today, chapter 3 verse 1, it says, In the same way, wives are now called to submit to husbands. Likewise, in, verses, in verse 8 of chapter 3, Husbands, says, you see that little phrase, in the same way, it happens again, in the same way, husbands are to be considerate to their wives. You see, that little phrase, in the same way, is translated, if you look back to chapter 2, verse 18, with all respect. It's, it's the same little phrase that's coming up. So what Peter is saying, every relationship that you look at must be worked out with all respect. Those, if you like, the controlling phrases of this whole middle section of 1 Peter. We're talking about how Christians relate to the world around us. It's to be done with all respect. That's how we're to live in relationship with one another under submission to to work, to wives, husbands, everything. To silence the talk of the non-Christians, the ignorant talk, and so that they might glorify God, chapter 2, verse 12. There, if you like, the controlling verses, which hold this whole section together. Now, simply, what Peter is doing here is he's not giving a, a, kind of a very detailed biblical analysis of what it means to be in a, in a marriage relationship or what it means to live underneath the authority of your boss at work. That's not the purpose of these passages here, though they do give some um, kind of information into that, into those situations. Rather, what he's doing, he's urging the, the Christians, the church, to realise that, the way that they conduct themselves, the way that you go about your relationships in a whole different, you know, lots of different ways, that will be noticed by the world around you. And therefore, you will either commend the world around you toward Christ, or you will push people away from Christ by the way that you go about your relationships. Let me give you a a quick example of this. That principle, if you like. You see it in the news at the moment, and look at the Liberal Democrat Party. Now, I'm making no political assertions here, okay? Just so I'm something very much neutral in this. But look at what's happening at the the moment. You see the decision-making and the public fall of two very high-profile figures, don't you? Lord Reynard and Chris Hume. You might have seen it. I don't want to go into the details of what, what, what's going on. But look what the, um, the party president, Tim Farron, said on the BBC this week. He said the Liberal Democrats are in a critical state and should not assume survival is guaranteed because of this situation, these two individuals. The point being is that you've got the conduct of two individuals in Well, one's a private matter, one's a little less private matter. But you see the effect, the damaging effect that it has had on the party as a whole. Their conduct has put off people from their party, the Liberal Democrats. And you see, that is why Peter is writing to the church in this situation, in the, these practical matters of their relationships, their conduct in the world. Because the way that they go about their lives will either draw people to Christ or, it were, it, on the other hand, it will repel people from Christ. And that is why Peter calls Christians to be an example in their marriages, in uh, the church, and in the world around them. And that's why I put the, if you like, the title of this, is Be an Example. We'll see at the end, seek peace and pursue it. That's what he's calling the Christians to be, be an example, to seek peace and pursue it. And the first instructions, don't you always love it? It's always the wives that come first. It's Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3. Always, why don't they flip around the other way? I don't know, but there we go. I'm going to ask that when I get to heaven. But look, it, it, the instructions come first to the wives. Please do note that it's not to all women to submit to all men. Be very clear on that. And it's not for a wife to submit to all husbands, only required to submit to their own. So how are we to uh, be an example to the world around us in our marriages? If you're not married, don't switch off. It's come helpful stuff here, I hope. Be an example then. First point, be an example in your marriages. Let me, I think it's really helpful here to see what was the issue at the time. Some kind of bit of culture, kind of background stuff. It's really helpful, I think. Firstly, a wife in that culture would have had very, very few friendships with anyone, any companionship outside of the home, the domestic kind of dwelling place. The only interaction they would have had would have been with close female family members. To have any other interaction would have been seen as a kind of a disorder in a Greco Roman kind of culture and it would have been undermining for the husband. The husband actually could have faced criticism um, and could easily damage his kind of social standing and therefore his ability to earn. So the example here is like yeah if a wife becomes a Christian and wants to go to church, that proves a much bigger hurdle because it could undermine the authority of the husband Within that culture. You see the issues that are going on. Now Peter doesn't mention any specifics here. Uh, He just asks the woman to submit. Now you've got to remember the context. Remember the intention of these instructions. See the wife's reverence for God. Motivates her willingness to submit to her husband. But what is she doing in that? She is shielding the Christian faith. Um, and her faith from any bad accusation from the society around her. That is what she is doing in in willingly submitting. It also um, commends Christ to the husband in her willingness to submit and it commends Christ to the culture around. As verse 1 said, they are to be won over without words. You see, it is the purity, it is the reverence of the Christian life lived that Peter is now commending in the wife. Likewise, he prioritises inner beauty, doesn't he, over outer beauty. Now, he isn't saying to you ladies, look, never, never try and you know, wear makeup or buy feminine clothes or anything like that. Aristotle, at this time, did once say that cosmetics were an attempt to deceive, but we'll kind of brush over that if you want to. No, the issue here is that if if a woman was attending a Christian gathering outside of her home, which itself was questionable because of the undermining authority of the, of the husband, by leaving the home, the original phrase is unadorned, that is with, you know, without cosmetics, without wearing her best you know, outfit, and by leaving the home unadorned, her intent was therefore clearer to the culture around her. You know, she, It was very clear that she was going to worship God in a Christian gathering if she were unadorned rather than going to you know, befriend someone else of the opposite sex, which would have been very uh, inappropriate and undermining to her husband. Again, the impression of the onlooking public outside of the church is of greatest importance here in 1 Peter. The gentle and the quiet spirit, again... a cultural cultural norm that would not provide a barrier between the Christian onlooker and and observing the Christian in that culture. You see, what the quiet and gentle spirit is is saying, don't be an argumentative wife at that point. He's saying pursue peace in the relationship because that will commend Christ to the onlooker. The example of Sarah is given there because actually she called Abraham... Master, never to his face actually. Uh, but she did submit to him and refer to him as such. Now, nothing in this passage, I want to be you know, a little bit kind of clear, sanctions, any, any kind of abuse here. We're not saying submit to the point of you know, uh, an extreme. Certainly you know, physical abuse of any kind. But for the sake of the gospel, Christians are called to conduct their relationships in a way that would be considered a good witness to the unbelieving onlooker. And in this context, especially in that patriarchal society. Likewise for husbands, let's go to them in verse 8 if we can. Um, Peter addresses the Greco-Roman attitude of the inferiority of women, which was well thought um, by most people at that time. And what does he do? He challenges that by saying, no, you're equal. You're co-heirs with Christ. We are totally equal in spiritual worth before God. And that attitude, that understanding changes everything in the marriage relationship. But Peter does say, doesn't he, wives are the weaker partner. I'm sure that goes down well. Well, he says that firstly because of the obvious reason of physical differences. And in that kind of culture, physical strength was a massive issue, because the physical strength, the physical differences, were a means of protection and productivity. But the context also suggests uh, that women were the weaker partner, a sense of social entitlement and sort of empowerment. And therefore, what Peter is doing is, is all the more kind of countercultural. He's teaching men who are overzealous in their authority in crushing their wives that that though they may have all the approval of those around them in the culture, they have no approval from God if they use their authority to crush their wives. The well-being of a Christian marriage and household depends on the man recognising that his wife is a co-heir with Christ equal in spiritual worth. And that should lead to, it says, respect. Which stands against all the kind of social norms of the time. Now what does that practically look like? Let me just sort of, you know, that's all the kind of first century, isn't it? Let me just kind of work that out for us. I want to say this because I think it's important to say in church at some point, it clearly prohibits things like Domestic violence. I say that because it was a disgusting norm at the time. And it's a hidden reality today. All too often. And it is the opposite of considerate and respectful. And it strips a woman of her dignity. Secondly, see these verses as intended. They are not... (laughs) This detailed account of the nature and extent of headship and submission in biblical marriages. We would turn to Ephesians 5 for that more readily. Rather they are pushing the husband and wife to demote their own desires for the sake of the non-Christian onlooker. Submitting is hard though, isn't it? It is a high and it is a lofty calling. And it means to obey. But it is one of the greatest evangelistic tools that any married woman has at her disposal because it is exactly what Christ did for us when he swept drops of blood for you and me in a garden and then hung on a tree. He said, not my will but yours. Thirdly then, um, all of us should note the gospel priority of inner beauty over and above outer beauty, in, in a culture where we are you know, obsessed by appearances, uh, I, you know, although it's a specific instruction to the to the wives here, I think it can really apply to most of us, and it ought to be a powerful and attractive counterculture. Yes, the instruction does come to wives, but you know, just look at how much we spend and how much time we spend on appearance. Now, it's not saying, uh, you know, become deliberately ugly, if that were possible. Neither is it saying, do nothing for your appearance. It is a matter of priority. And if you find yourself preening and grooming and waxing and gelling, I wish I could, um, or, you know, more than you are praying and you are pouring over God's word... Then you will need to consider your priorities. How do you want to be known? You know, when your friends at work discuss, you know, you kind of get around, have you seen him So you know, or seen her? And what do they say when they get to you? Nice suit this month? Nice pair of you know, shoes? Or, you know, love the way they've done their hair this year? Um, all the makeup really went with all the, you know, or do you? It's not going to work for me, is it? <laughs> Or do you want them to talk about how generous, how loving, how compassionate you are? And how you slightly annoyingly, every now and then, slip Jesus into the conversation without them really knowing? Be an example in your marriages. But I think there's some lessons for all of us there too. Secondly, be an example in the church. Turn your eyes down to verse 8, just verse 8, and we'll read it again. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. It is quite amusing, isn't it, that, that Peter gets you know, like two and a half chapters through, and there's still two and a half chapters to go, and he says, Finally, if I ever say that in a sermon, I'm halfway. That's good. So there's a nice little kind of precedent there set by an apostle. I'm claiming that one. Anyway, um, actually, finally means that we should take account of what we've heard so far from these uh, first. Uh, few chapters here and apply what we've learned as we move on. So the, the all um, of you in verse 8 refers to us, that is God's elect. He's really throwing you back to the first few verses of chapter 1 there, the strangers in the world, the, the Christian people scattered throughout Asia Minor. So these are Peter's instructions to all The Christians, the Church, essentially—that's why I say, "Be an example to the Church." The context here in verse eight is the Church, and Peter literally says, "You know, live in harmony," which means be of one mind. Really, in the original, the gospel message should not cause division, you see, but rather, as the onlooker looks into us, he should see us united, not divided, being of one mind. Living in harmony. Further to this, there's lots of instruction: I'll be sympathetic, compassionate, love as brothers, be humble. In essence, what he's saying is, is live as a family of one mind and purpose, looking to support one another. There are five adjectives here, and they should characterize us. This church, Christchurch Ellsford, look at them. Live in harmony, be sympathetic, love as brothers. Love one another, essentially, there. Be compassionate. Be humble. Which one of those do you struggle with? Which one? You see, it's interesting. The same list would be equally esteemed in a Greco Roman culture in the first century. And the issue is not here to create a counterculture, as in with a marriage relationship. The issue is here is trying to keep up and to outdo, if you like, the culture at that time. Everyone wants these virtues of community. They did then, they do today. Whatever political party you look at, whether left or right, they're all telling us to love, to be compassionate, to be harmonious in the communities in which we live, the big society and so on. It's interesting though, I think they can't include one the one thing they can't encourage and they couldn't do in the first century either was that humility, isn't it? Because they weren't. They always wanted to demonstrate how much they had done, pretty much like we see today in the political parties. And that, I think, is where the church ought to stand beautifully distinct from the world around us. The church ought to be a window for the world to see the very nature of God in action, in community together, harmony, sympathy, love, compassion, but with that humility. It doesn't want to say, hey, look at us, aren't we great? Because there you begin to see the very attributes of God and the Lord Jesus Christ as he dies on the cross. See, to restore harmony between us and God in his sympathy and his love and his compassion for you. What did Jesus do? He humbled himself. Not seeking his own pleasure and glory, but yours and mine. Uh, John actually read them out at the beginning. Those verses, verse 24 of chapter 2, they're so beautiful, aren't they? He bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might live for righteousness and by his wounds you have been healed. See, Jesus exemplifies every single one of these adjectives. And that should characterise us as a church. Therefore, as we struggle to live them out, that is living for righteousness, what we're doing there is actually, we're struggling to make Christ known as a community. Because he's the place where we we can see ultimate humility, compassion and loving service. And that's what we need to be projecting to the world around us. We need to be doing it because that is what Christ has done and that's what we want to tell people, the gospel. Therefore, we need to look at ourselves, we need to examine ourselves and see where we're weakest as a church, corporately, and of course individually too. Where we have blurred the nature of Christ as a church, are we humble? Are we sympathetic? Do we love And this is really relevant, I think, for us today, because all too often, all we seem to kind of hear is how we differ from other Christians. How the church is on a kind of a mission of self-destruction. And we see that in the news all too often. And Peter is telling us to be united by purpose and thought, to care as a family for our fellow Christians, rather than always pointing out faults um, with other churches we should be striving for unity as long as we agree on that central gospel message explained in the Bible. As a very special event is going on right now, which I'm recording, and if anyone tells me the score, I will probably (coughs) rugby tackle you myself. (coughs) A church should be like a rugby scrum. Bear with me just for a second on this wonderful illustration. (coughs) A good scrum, okay? Okay only works if everyone is bound together tightly uh, and channeling strength and power in the same direction. We as a church should be exactly like that in some... Well, yeah, you know what I mean. Tightly knit together, focusing on the same direction to support each other, telling others about the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ who exemplifies Every single one of these five adjectives. Be an example in your marriages. Be an example in the church. And lastly, very, very quickly. Be an example in the world around us. So verse 9, cast your eyes down there, instructs them to be loving, even to those who are insulting and evil towards them. Peter actually says, return the insult with a blessing. Why? Because we're called to inherit a blessing. This is not salvation by works, okay? Do this and you will be saved. That's not what Peter is saying. This actually works because of the salvation that you and I have received because of Jesus' death on the cross. And if you look back in chapter 1, verse 2, flip over the page if you want, you can see that we are chosen through the sanctifying work um, of the Spirit. What is it? It's for obedience to Jesus Christ. The sanctifying makes us right with God, uh, but that happens before the obedience. It's because we are right with God that we we should live as Jesus wants us to. Salvation comes first, the work second. It does seem a very uh, odd thing to apparently let someone get away with these kind of evil actions towards you there, but look at verse 12. This is Peter's comfort in the situation. We've got to rely on God, He's the judge. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And Peter in verses 10 to 12 quotes from Psalm 34 to explain the motivation and the reason for us to live this way. Because it seems tough, doesn't it? It goes against our natural instinct of justice. So Christians are called to turn from evil and do good, to seek and pursue peace in verse 11. But why is that? Because God will look favourably upon us if we do so. And listen to our requests. His ears are attentive to their prayers, the psalm says. But there is warning there as well that if they do not live this way, that God will be against them, and the face of the Lord is against those, as we've seen already. That is, God will turn his anger and judgment on those who can persistently do evil. That's scary stuff, it is. But on an individual level, we should be focusing on the way that we live our lives. So are we, are we any different to the colleagues around us, our non-Christian friends? Do you respond in a similar way when you are you know, mocked or insulted at work? Do you respond by insulting back? Particularly, uh, do we react when we get abused for our faith? Do we get angry if we miss out on something because our priority is Christ and, and church? You know, if you regularly come to home group and your boss says, oh, well, you're always going early on Tuesday... Well, you leave at, you know, seven rather than whatever time you do. In this country, we need to thank God that we do not face abuse or suffering for being a Christian that many countries around the world do. And we've prayed about that tonight. However, we do face mockery and therefore we have got decisions to make. We've got choices to make about how we live our lives. And Peter is clear that we should respond with blessing. Respond in a loving way. We must seek peace and pursue it. Why? Because then we're living as God wants us to. That's the obvious one. But in so doing, we are demonstrating Christ to the world. God will judge the injustice of this world, and maybe because of the way that we are living our lives, that will also mean that we can demonstrate and make known Christ to the world. I was listening to uh, some stuff um, on this uh, whilst running early in the week and uh, one story was told of an American soldier in a barracks. And continually every night he was just being uh, mocked for being a Christian. He'd pray, he'd read his Bible on his bed. People would throw boots at him and they would hit his head. And, and it was pretty awful what he, what he went through. But he decided, made a deliberate decision. How was he going to repay the insults, the mockery, the physical abuse that he was facing in those barracks. People threw boots at him one night while he was just reading his Bible on his bed and they just everyone went to sleep. Everyone the following morning woke up and all of their boots were underneath their bed polished in the most beautiful fashion ready for inspection the following day. It's a wonderful example of how to respond to insults with blessing. Why would you do that? Because you have been blessed immeasurably in Christ. Just to turn to the words of Spurgeon to begin, a soldier is a serving man. He's also a suffering man. He pants for honour and seeks for the glory of his Saviour. Let's pray that we do so too. Heavenly Father, these words are seem so far from our culture at times. And yet there are principles here, there's understanding here that all of us need to hear and need to change. The way that we live. Why? Because we long to see those who do not know you as Lord and Savior be commended, our Savior, through the way that we live. It's a different life, it's a challenging life. And Lord, There will be times when it hurts. So please help us. Help us to cling to you. To support one another. That wonderful example of the church in verse 8. So that the foolish talk, the the ignorant talk of outsiders will be silenced. And that they might see our good deeds. And ultimately might, might glorify God on the day that he visits us. We pray that. For your glory's sake. Amen. (coughs) Thank <coughs>